Outkick 360 is back. Glad you're with us across the Outkick network alongside Chad Withrow and Paul Kuharski. I'm Jonathan Hutton. A lot to get to today. Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network about to preview the, the Sweet 16 with us. Coming up in about 15 minutes. Tennessee Power Hour in hour number two to kick off the afternoon as the Tennessee Volunteers, for instance, kick off spring practice. A lot to discuss there. Gentlemen, hope you're doing well. Good morning. I'm doing very well, Hutton, and uh, you said it's a big show today. They're all big. That's uh, going to be our mantra throughout, and today is no different. Looking forward to some more basketball this weekend and uh, talking about those games with Dane. And uh, Hutton gave us an off-show tease that he's going to deliver on now uh, as, we, as we run through some headlines to open. FanDuel.com slash OK360 is the website. 30-to-1 odds on any team in the tournament right now, which means you can get the Zags for 30 to 1 odds by signing up at FanDuel.com slash OK360. It's a great offer. Restrictions do apply. Check it out for first-time users across the state of Tennessee and beyond. FanDuel.com slash OK360. couple of headlines Steve, out there How does today. one not do that, by the way? Oh. If you hear that offer and you hear if you just, just by signing up, and depositing a little bit of money, you can get 30 to 1 odds with an offer like this. I, I see some of these offers from FanDuel, and I think to myself, who wouldn't do that? So do it. That's five, what I'm saying. Do, just go ahead and do it. You know you want to. Do it. Win 150. 30 to 1 odds right now. FanDuel.com slash OK360. Uh, let's get it rolling. So the Washington football team, they have floated out this idea that they are considering just keeping the name Washington football team. Uh, this on the same day that Daniel Snyder, uh, the reports are that they are that he is purchasing the remaining forty and a half percent shares of the Washington franchise, uh, which would include Fred Smith's shares of the team. Uh, so if that's approved at the owners' meetings, he's going to own one hundred percent of the team. Also, the Chicago Bears yesterday tweeted out a photo of Andy Dalton with the hashtag QB one, and it got me thinking. Are these PR teams smart enough to float bad ideas out and see a fan reaction to allow a fan base to feel like they affected change in the decision? Well, on, on Washington, I mean, this has been floating since the initial reaction wasn't bad and the merchandise sold. That would be awfully unique for Washington to be like, you know, European soccer teams. Uh, and MLS has done a lot of this, you know, but you're Chelsea football club. And <clears throat> you don't really have a mascot. And that's a tradition of, of football teams, uh, which are soccer teams in Europe. Um, and so it's unique in that regard. And you'd be neat, unique in that regard. I think I saw their new team president lately saying like, in our research, what's been shown to be important to our fans is that it have some link to our history and not just be a, a, a rewrite, a, a restart, if you will. And so that's why Red Tails and Red Hawks the Washington have, Phoenix have, have been play in, as well. important or, or well-received. Um, so that's interesting to me. I don't know, like, uh, to me, what you're suggesting is kind of, though, you're kind of making fun of yourself when you put out Dalton as QB1 if you're saying, like, well, let's see how badly we get roasted on this idea. 
Why, and Andy why would you declare QB1 that March twenty right, on right March twenty fourth? Yeah. Why would you tweet out QB one with Andy Dalton? You know why? Because you need content, and this this no. this. Well, I'm telling you, you this, don't need content. This well, is terrible content. Yeah, you know, it's terrible content. But this is where the team is at odds with being a media company and being a football team, because the media department, while beholden to the football side, needs constant content because it's now also a media company. And on March 24th, it doesn't have a lot of content. And so the social media department, if the coach and the GM say, go ahead and do your thing, does something like sends that tweet, gets a lot of hits on Twitter and is, quote, unquote, doing its job. And the football department says, I don't doing care its what the job, social media. Doing getting roasted by literally everyone. That's what it did. Well, if the football it, department hated it so much, though, Paul, why didn't they tell them to delete it? Well, right. I don't so know that's, that what I, that's what I feel like the football department's behind much. it. I think it's uh, any, any attention is good attention kind of thing. No. No, not with this. Oh, man. I, and I don't buy into that either. I mean, 100% negative attention is bad attention. <laughs> By the way, Andy Dalton as quarterback one in Chicago is a major upgrade. Yeah, no one likes it. I mean, it's, it's still It's a significant it's upgrade. It's still bad. Now, I will say, if you're doing something like a, a logo release or a new uniform, would you intentionally float something that's really bad early, early, where either you have an alternative to see what the the backup plan is, or you're taking a temperature, or you're or you're intentionally misleading your fans to think it's something bad, and then it's something good. There's a local example when we had our old show with the Nashville Sounds, where if you remember, they floated this color scheme that I don't was think they awful. Were floating it, I think they were really doing it. They announced it; and it was terrible. Well. Either way, I don't, know, I don't know what happened, but they announced that it was terrible. We it was bashed beige. it. It was beige. Others bashed it. The color it. of vomit. They came back quickly and changed it. Quickly. So either they had that as a back, backdrop or they were intentionally floating something bad to come back and say, now look how great this new scheme is, is and this new bad. logo is. I, I think you're on to something, Hutton. I also think that okay. there are just a lot of – there's a lot of really smart people who run social media and marketing – and there's a few really dumb people that run social media and marketing. And maybe some dumb people made the decision to do that. There's also sometimes the simplest explanation is the explanation. And maybe that's Occam's what it razor. is. Thank you, Paul. Yes, Occam's razor. Maybe the Occam's razor is it's just a really dumb social media person that thought that was a good idea. And sometimes those people uh, uh, go further than they should uh, take more leeway. I, I, back to Washington for a second on S- Snyder probably approved next week at the owners' meetings for this ownership. I don't like the timing of it. The team's under investigation still for uh, things run amok with domestic, uh, not domestic issues, uh, mistreatment of women in the organization issues and more with Daniel Snyder having a terrible, terrible reputation. Now, I don't believe the leagues can really control ownership to the degree that a lot of people would like to see, and I understand that, Donald Sterling being the one big exception that we've seen that I could recall. But with Daniel Snyder in the midst of that investigation and the complaints from his um, smaller fraction owners, who want out, I understand. Mm -hmm. So I guess you're doing them a favor letting them out. But do you say to Daniel Snyder, as a reward for you completely stinking up one of the great organizations in league history, we're going to let you assume 
total control. The 40% that you don't have, you can now have. Because you well, he already had total control. Well, right. But in, in terms of the stake. Now he's got 100%. Now you will have 100%. So the people that you've stepped on and the organizational flaws that you have that we're investigating that could lead to some serious consequences, we're going to give you more. We're going to approve more. It seems ridiculous to me timing-wise. Well, here's, here's my question. And I'm not saying that the NFL needs more control over over ownership or over anything in their league. But they do have control in terms of voting. Well, and approval. you said it, Paul, that there's, there's certain right? things that they won't do or can't do with ownership. But how is it that they can go about colluding to keep certain people from buying a team? It has to have universal approval from those owners to allow someone to come into the, the, the good old boys club. Two-thirds or three-quarters of right. the vote. But, so, but they can do that, but yet they can't also get together and say, this guy or girl's got to go. It's weird to me that they can keep someone out, but they can't kick someone out. And again, I'm not saying that they should have that power, but if they have the power to say, uh, Major League Baseball, for instance, Mark Cuban's not going to be an owner. Right. He has long argued that I rub people the wrong way. They, they will not let me buy the Cubs. They will not let me buy a Major League Baseball team, and I badly want a baseball team. If baseball and, and football and all these leagues can say, you can't come in, Paul Kuharski's a billionaire, but Paul Kuharski cannot be an owner and cannot be in our club, then if Daniel Snyder's such a problem, why can't they also on the flip side say, Daniel Snyder's out? I think they could. They can. They could. They won't. Why? Because he's I'm saying if they're old, willing to take the steps right. to not allow someone to buy a team that has the money, why can't they also take the steps to get someone like Daniel Snyder out? Because he's been there. His money has helped them uh, because they don't want change in that direction. Right, Hunt? Well, well, let's be honest. It's a selfishness aspect. You want to set a precedent for yourself. Yeah. yeah that's very, why you don't vote him out. Yeah, right. When you I could be the one. next one. Yeah. Yes. That's, they don't want to set that tone. Yeah. You're absolutely, you're absolutely <laughs> that's right. That's the reason. Well, and I do wonder if when Donald Sterling was kicked out, if there were owners in the NBA sitting around thinking, boy, if I get involved in some I'm sort of controversy, then now I'm going to be the next one that's out. It's a little different, too, because the NBA is not a guaranteed ATM the way the NFL is. I mean, if someone, if Daniel Snyder got kicked out of NFL ownership, you'd have billionaires lining up to buy an NFL team because it's going to print money. I think an NBA the return on investment is going to be quick. Purchase, isn't it? A pro sports team period is a pretty good purchase. There are if NBA, you could get an MLS team right now, you'd take it. You would, you would take an NBA team before you would an NHL team, but an NBA team is not the guaranteed money. No, maker I mean the NFL, NFL is, team is. is king for a reason. Right. But I think if you could get a pro sports franchise in America, as a as a purchase, you're, you're taking it. If you're if you're that if you have that kind of money. I mean, it's a pretty consistent return on investment. I'm not so sure that if an NHL team opened up that they wouldn't have a hard time With finding an owner. NHL maybe is a little different. We, we had this conversation about a Canadian team losing money pre-pandemic, having trouble with a hotel bill. Um, you know, that, that's a story all of its own. Jadavian Clowney making a free agent visit in I, Cleveland. I that's where he, he met last yeah. offseason as well. Uh, and ended up not signing with the Browns then. Uh, but there is interest in Clowney yet again. There's a headline at Pro Football Talk on a video. Would Jadavian Clowney throw the Browns over the top? 
I mean, I just can't understand how he's viewed as that kind of guy. I think maybe he's a piece for somebody in some way. But, I mean, do you put him in any way, shape, or form as a guy who's going to throw a team over the top? They're looking to replace Olivier Vernon, who I guess is in limbo. Is he coming off uh, an Achilles? Am I remembering that correctly? We need to do a study. This reminds me of something, Paul. We need to do a study one day on bad headline writers. Because I, I'm curious. I see that headline. I think that's really idiotic. What you just brought well, up I about the Browns and clowning. I think they had a conversation. But I would love to go in and read the story and see if that's what the story is actually saying. I think saying. it was a video. Because there's a lot of bad headlines out there that's meant to grab attention. And then you go into the story, and that's not what they're discussing at all. I think this was a video headline, and okay. I bet it is a part of what they were discussing. I, I just keep seeing him on remaining free agent lists and everything, and it, he ranks very high to me. I was going to send an email to a, to a friend of mine who's in, in one of those and say, these five people behind him, I, I, I can't believe they're not going to be more impactful players next year than he was. Coming up. PK will tell the story of the naked intruder from, what now, two years ago? Two. We tell the backstory. Paul tells the backstory. That's in about 30 minutes. But we preview the Sweet 16 with a friend of the show and a great analyst for the SEC Network, Dane Bradshaw, former Tennessee volunteer, joins us next on Outkick 360. Outkick 360 on the Outkick Network. Glad you're with us with Chad Withrow and Paul Koharski. I'm Jonathan Hutton. Big thanks to Lance Lee, Jacob Swanson, and David Reed for making the show happen. Pleased to be joined as we preview and switch gears, talk some Sweet 16 action coming up this weekend. Dane Bradshaw joins us. He is a studio and game analyst for the SEC Network. Dane, it is great to have you on the show. Hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the uh, the new gig and the new show, podcast, or whatever you want to call it. But I uh, hope, hope it's going well. It's you know all under it the same umbrella. We, we appreciate it, We man. don't even know what to call it yet, yeah. Dane, so your, your guess is good as ours. <laughs> call, call it whatever the heck you want. <laughs> How do you uh, – what do you call this tournament? The, the 16 teams that remain combined for the highest seed total ever. What's been the reason to you as to why we saw so many upsets through the first two rounds? I don't know that I can pinpoint it. I, I guess maybe some of it could be the fatigue of the season. Um, you know, you could point to some of it maybe with, without the, the typical crowds and teams just not gelling as much. And, and then, of course, you know, your, your perennial blue bloods that you expect to kind of be in the Sweet 16 every single year. When you remove the Michigan States, the Dukes, the Kentuckys, of course, that opens up a few spots for maybe some more of these Cinderella's. Uh, as opposed to the, the normal faces that you see in there. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been a crazy, crazy year. It's been fun. But, look, the, the other part is, you know, the, these majors are really good. They're talented. They can shoot the ball. They can defend. And, um, you know, the, the separation just really isn't that far when you compare those teams against some of the others right now. Dane, when I watch Loyola Chicago, I don't see a Cinderella and I don't see a team that looks like they, they don't belong. I, I see a team that could be top 15 throughout the year, and they're playing like it right now. When you watch them play, what are your thoughts about how good this team is and now with an opportunity against a, a 12 seed in Oregon State, just how far they could go in this tournament? It's interesting. I had them 
the year they made their final four run at Florida where they upset the Gators and their big man, Cameron Crutwig, was just a freshman. And, you know, I'm watching film on them before the game and I'm seeing them. And I'm talking to Porter Moser at the shoot around. I'm like, you know, that Crutwig kid, uh, he's kind of a point center for you. And I go, am I overthinking that? He goes, no. He was like, I'm telling you, he, he's one of the best passing big man you ever see. It allows us to just run our offense 15 feet and in through him. Uh, now, I did not see them making the run. I didn't think they'd be as good as they were. Uh, but, man, that, that guy has been the heart and soul of that program. And you're exactly right. I mean, some of these below-the-rim guys, which is fundamentally sound, they play together, they're connected. Um, they, they can they can beat the more talented teams, uh, if you will. And so much of it, too, is, you know, the, the draft boards – Yes, sometimes it's off production, but a lot of times it's off potential. How high of a ceiling do you have? Um, you see it at Tennessee, a team we're, we're all very familiar with on this show, Keon Johnson, who has a huge ceiling. However, we're not talking about the NBA draft when it's March Madness. We're talking about you know four-year proven productive guys that you know you're going to get game in, game out. And Loyola Chicago has those guys. And uh, – all coaches you talk to, whether it's good or bad, they want to know what am I going to get from each player on a consistent basis. Whether you can't shoot, just don't be a good shooter. So I know I can plan for that. <laughs> if you can play good defense, do it every game. So I can plan for that. Porter Moser has that consistency with his team. Dane, when you see what Mark Few's been able to accomplish at Gonzaga, and this is a discussion we had on our show, but you look at Porter Moser and, and what he's done at Loyola Chicago. If they can fend off Indiana or other jobs that are definitely going to come after him, could Loyola Chicago become the Gonzaga of the Midwest if they're able to keep a coach like that? And are we seeing now in college basketball where maybe it's becoming a little bit more likely for a guy like Moser to stay at a mid-major like Loyola Chicago? Yeah, money talks. And so I, I don't know if they can become the Gonzaga necessarily. Um, but it is, it, it, you know, the, the programs and the amount that they can pay in the seven figures, it's no longer such a no-brainer to move up to that Power Five. Yeah, you can get more millions, but it also makes that coach consider, hey, I'm making pretty good money now. Is it worth uh, living a different sort of lifestyle and the pressure as opposed to doing what I love, which is coaching ball, making a bunch of money, and I don't have to pretend to go for greener pastures. And I think so much of that has just come down to the fact that these mid-major schools um, can throw out pretty sizable, healthy salaries for these coaches. And so um, I don't know that they can become the Gonzaga necessarily. Uh, you know, Mark Few's been doing this a, a long time. It's amazing. I mean, I remember watching Dan Dickow back in the day uh, when they came to, to Memphis for one of the regionals. And so it's just amazing the consistency that he's been able to to do it with. And I think some of it, yes, that the money's involved. And I'm not saying every coach that goes to a power school has power five school has, has a bigger ego necessarily, but you know, that that's for some coaches. It's not for others. Some coaches just say, look, I don't want to be at every rotary club. I don't want to be, you know, the, uh, the, the greatest thing in the whole community and being asked to do X, Y, Z constantly. I just like kind of being in my smaller bubble here where I can still compete um, for a final four, which, Loyola, Chicago, VCU, all those schools have, have now shown that it doesn't have to just be betting on a once-in-a-lifetime Cinderella run. You can do it multiple times throughout your coaching career if you stay put. Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network with us on OutKick 360. 
Dane, for, for all of the upsets that we've seen, do you predict a fairly predictable finish here with, with Gonzaga up top, Baylor, Michigan, Alabama? Are we about to see the higher seeds take over? No, I, I don't. I, I, I think the cream rises to the top. I, I agree. I think the, the higher seeds do take over the ones that have been consistent throughout the course of the year, which for the most part, Michigan has been. Baylor was a little bit of a rough start after they had their COVID shutdown and disruption. And Gonzaga obviously has been wire to wire. I mean, the most interesting part to me is all the double digit seeds uh, that you have on the bottom right of the bracket. And then you've got Houston, Syracuse. Like one of those teams um, is going to advance to a final four. And, but even in that case, I still lean towards uh, the lower seat of Houston with Kelvin Sampson. But uh, yeah, it's funny because it's it, every fan base understands that March Madness is all about upsets and expect the unexpected, but it's inexcusable for it to ever happen to their team. So, you know, even as these brackets go on, it doesn't make any, any fan base uh, any uh, more patient, uh, even knowing what's coming. So, Dane, let's look at the SEC teams uh, that are left in this tournament and a couple of second-year head coaches in Nate Oates at Alabama and Eric Musselman at Arkansas doing uh, outstanding jobs. St starting with Alabama, seems like the perfect mix of roster he inherited along with guys he brought in that fits perfectly with his system. When you look at this team, I, I think right now they're the second-best team in this tournament outside of Gonzaga. What do you think about the job Nate Oates has done in such a quick time in Tuscaloosa? He's been awesome, man. I, I've had the benefit of covering them a lot, and, and he's he's so uh, great with his accessibility, you know, at shoot-arounds, film, giving you breakdowns of what their game plan is, and, and you kind of get to see just how detailed they are. Um, it, you know, He's huge on the analytics and studying what the NBA does, and um, – you know, it, it really doesn't surprise me. I actually had them going further last year. I thought they would have been in the top three or four in the SEC. All that did not click. They lost Kyra Lewis, lottery pick. Um, but last year is the best thing that ever happened to them because they proved they could score 80-plus a game. But they also – the roster also realized that might not be enough to win because they couldn't stop anybody. So the entire offseason during the COVID shutdown, all that, it was them having Zoom calls about defensive breakdowns, defensive clips. And it helps when the uh, head of their snake, Herb Jones, is a defense first type player. He's the player of the year in the SEC and defensive player of the year. So when, when everybody embraces that identity um, is where you see these results. But Nate Oates, I think he has got a great balance of not just saying, hey, we're going to outscore you. We're a run and gun style. Uh, they, have, they have what's called hard hat points, you know, the blue collar award type stuff within their system. And uh, you're, you're seeing that pay dividends because – what makes them so great is the fact that even when they're not shooting the ball well, other teams are hanging in there with them, but that team cannot get any separation. It's usually a two to four point lead, but then it only, you blink and all of a sudden Bama's on a 9-0 run. It could come from any guy on the court. And, and it's really interesting if you talk to him, a lot of it goes back to his Detroit Romulus days as a high school coach. They got beat in the first round of a state tournament or, or a regional, whatever it was. And from that day on, he said, look, I'm never going to not have five guys on the court that can pass, dribble, and shoot, which breaks it down pretty simply. Now, their offense is more complicated than that, but that's the premise of it. Can you pass, dribble, and shoot? If you can't do all five of those things, whether you're the point guard or the center, you can't play. 
And so that's where they had some of the roster turnover this year where you had some big men. They just played against one of their former teammates from Maryland, Galen Smith. They let a kid go to um, uh, Mississippi State, and, you know, within the conference, which is rare. But he said, look, we're not going to be a good fit for you. You need to go to a school that has more traditional post. And uh, I'll rant a little bit more because you guys are probably like me, the old school. You're, if you were taught, if you were told to go coach a little league camp right now, you'd probably start off with triple threat. Like everybody knows triple threat fundamental. Nate Oates says, we get that out of their system. You have half a second to pass, shoot, or dribble. And triple threat takes half a second. So we got to get that out of their system. And if you watch Alabama play, man, they get the ball, they rip it through or take the quick shot. So uh, none of the old school triple threat that I always thought was uh, a must-have at the fundamental stage of basketball. Speaking of going back to our childhood era, uh, Dane, Arkansas and Eric Musselman and the job he's done. Crazy to think that it's been 25 years since they reached a Sweet 16, and now Musselman does it in year two. I, I think back at Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman and those great Nolan Richardson teams, and it's crazy to think it's been a quarter of a century since they've been to this round. But what a job Musselman has done. What is his style, and, and how did he get it working so quickly with the Razorbacks program? Well, and in different ways, he inherited a pretty good situation, too. And I, I hate to ever lead off with that point because it, it acts as if you're devaluing something, but it's not. I mean, these coaches came in and did a job that the previous coach either didn't do as successfully or, or wasn't able to capitalize on. And Musselman's situation, he inherited a great recruiting base in that in, in Arkansas's backyard, they had all like a once-in-a-lifetime type recruiting base led by Moses Moody. But they came in and they signed all those guys. So you got to give them credit there. And now you're seeing the production they have on the court. But then he's filled it with a bunch of transfers. However, I'll say this, whether you look at Kentucky or other places across the country, this is a year where we give everybody a pass, rightfully so, for not, you know, for freshmen and newcomers not having an opportunity to gel and get that chemistry in the offseason, all those things. Yet somehow Eric Musselman has found a way to do that, where where this roster is not experienced in terms of playing together, whether that's because they're freshmen or because they're transfers. Yet you look out there on the court and you would think these guys had been playing together since they were in seventh grade. Uh, They play hard. They're accountable. Uh, There was an article earlier, uh, I think today, I I apologize for not being able to uh, quote the source, but I had their game earlier in the season. They got smacked at LSU by like 30 and they had a quick turnaround against Alabama, which obviously the hottest team in the SEC. And Eric Musselman said, he goes, look, we probably are going to look really bad against Alabama because we practiced so hard the other day. He said, I had a choice, either prepare our best for Alabama coming up or lay the foundation and standard that what we did at LSU was completely unacceptable. And that's what they decided to do. And they came out flat against Alabama. They looked bad. They took it on the chin. But it was that practice that they had that a lot of the players are pointing back to that said, you know what, that was our wake-up call. That was the most important practice we had all season. And so I really applaud him. You know, he does some interesting things, too. You talk about accountability. He has guys stand up in front of the others in the film room, and he'll literally say, all right, rank the hardest-working players on the team, you know, one through ten. And so, they're, I mean, it's out there. And there, there's nothing behind closed doors, and guys know where they stand with each other. And I think that's part of why you might see um, their chemistry and their bond being at a little bit of accelerated pace than you see other schools right now. 
chatting Sweet 16 headlines and matchups with Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network. Different circumstances, different teams, different experience. But I, I want to get into Villanova and Michigan dealing with losses of players. So Jay Wright without Colin Gillespie, Jawan Howard without Isaiah Livers, find ways to adjust without those guys and advance. Villanova, I think, particularly impressive. Only 12 turnovers in two games against traditionally pretty good defenses while scoring. And Michigan, in a tournament where, where good seeds drop, uh, find a way to, to advance into a game against Florida State. Yeah, I was really impressed. I didn't watch as much, at, admittedly, on the Villanova game. I was, I was locked into the LSU-Michigan one. Um, and LSU was putting up some points. People might not agree with their style of play. It's a lot of one-on-one baskets, but they got some guys that can go that will be playing at the next level. And Michigan, I thought Michigan was entering a danger zone there where they were kind of playing LSU style. But, man, even without livers, they showed that they could beat LSU at their own own own, uh, own style. And it was a high-scoring affair. But they had guys all over the court knocking sh- shots down, making plays. And, uh, that it, look, you might say, okay, well, LSU, that was an eight seed. Look, LSU had a ton of talent and, and much better than just your typical eight seed. Um, and, you know, the job that Jawan Howard has done has just been remarkable. They've got a – you know, according to Ken Palm, they're, they're top 10 in offense and defense efficiency. Uh, you know, th- that to me is the big separator a little bit, uh, whereas Villanova not as efficient on the defensive side, but they control the game with, with their tempo. They'll slow it down. And and look, uh, you got to give your hats off to, to um, Jay Wright as well, who just, you know, you get so used to seeing him this far in March. But as you look at like the top 20 paid coaches in the country um, and, and Chad, you're you're very close to the Tennessee fan base. People are upset that Rick Barnes and Tennessee didn't advance further. But my message has been, hey, yeah, the guy's making five million a year. But go look at the other guys that are making about that much and who weren't even included in March and who who's not even advancing. There's only a couple guys in the top 20 that, that are advancing. And that's Mick Cronin at UCLA, uh, who have kind of put on a Cinderella run of their own and, and Jay Wright, who we're talking about now. So um, not Calipari, not Krzyzewski, not, you know, Chris Beard isn't still in this thing. Roy Williams, Izzo, Pearl, Buzz Williams. I mean, these guys are making some big money and uh, not to say that those guys aren't worth it. Everybody has a down year, especially this year, but um, you know, I I think even more credit goes to Jay Wright for just being able to have that consistency in his program, no matter what gets, gets thrown at him. Wick and Suggs, and, and maybe there's someone else. Which players still remaining in the field do you enjoy watching the most? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a pass-first guy. I love Suggs, just the way he can pass the ball and, and how quick Gonzaga gets their shots up. I mean, they get down the court, and they get high-quality looks just, just right away. Um, so uh, offensively, and I think of beauty, I, I, love, I love watching Suggs play. Um, keeping it in, in the SEC, I'm biased, but – uh, I still, you know, this isn't, you know, necessarily one player, but but that this Alabama team, they they truly do have so many different weapons, and that's what that's part of the intrigue to me when I watch those guys play. Is Herb Jones, their star player, was on the bench with foul trouble last game, and that's when they made their big run. They had a kid, Alex Reese, 
you know, comes off the bench and makes back-to-back threes. You just don't know who's going to provide that 6-0 to 12-0 spark, and their balance is terrific. Um, on the Arkansas side, uh, kid Justin Smith transfer from Indiana, not even on the SEC list or all-SEC team. Everybody felt like maybe he was snubbed. Uh, is he sort of the, the perennial glue guy of the SEC? But you look at the numbers of Justin Smith's putting up there. If they named a, an all-tournament team right now in the NCAA tournament, this dude's a, a first-teamer. Uh, he, he has been absolutely incredible. Um, and so uh, I'm not a huge guy on the transfer market, but it is neat to see guys like that that um, you know ha- have to make a change in their careers and, and be able to have the success. So um, and 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 admittedly, look, I keep it I keep it focused on the SEC some with my expertise because. All my games are SEC. I can tell you a lot more about Vanderbilt's eighth and ninth man on the roster than uh, than watching all the Gonzaga games. So I'm having fun right now being able to just kind of enjoy as a fan and and watch Michigan Gonzaga. I've gotten to see them a little bit throughout the season. But, uh, again, like I said, I think the cream rises to the top. I'd love to see uh, Jawan Howard uh, all these years later get back to the national championship, see if he can't re- redeem the fab. Fab Five, but there's a big part of me rooting for uh, Mark Few and Gonzaga as well. Well, Dane, let's get to the SEC also in our alma mater in Tennessee. You mentioned it, Vols fans disappointed with this season, especially the way it finished against Oregon State. You look at Rick Barnes, he's had so much success developing guys. When he had that you know, senior-led team, veteran-led team with Grant Williams, uh, Schofield, Jordan Bone, and those guys had a lot of success. Now they're getting some one-and-done players, not as much success going that route. Does it feel like the Rick Barnes program is sort of at a crossroads of what they want to be and having an identity moving forward? And how much change do you expect with this program going into next season? I wouldn't call it a crossroads necessarily. I mean, look, they had a roller coaster year, but still managed to get a five seed and uh, what was a wild year for many programs. So um, did they end on a high note? No. But I think one of the things that you learned um, was what was the importance of point guard play. Look, uh, you know, I don't Jaden Springer was great. Keon Johnson, great. But even when they were undefeated for non-conference play, I felt like my biggest concern was, yeah, but they got a lot of guys that can play point guard, but they have anybody that can thrive at point guard. And Santiago Vescovi, good, hardworking player, can knock down the open shot, but just a sophomore. I, I didn't, I wasn't ready to say Tennessee had elite point guard play, and I think that was an issue throughout the season is they never got that. Um, and as a result, you see their offense not operating as well and very inconsistent. And then when you match that up with the fact that they had such inconsistent play down low with John Fulkerson and Epon struggling in their senior years offensively, um, it, it was just a mixed bag of results. And and you hope that the freshmen could be that answer. But instead of them being part of their offense, they became their offense. And that's where you you got into the danger zone, as you saw there. But I think they, they've, you know, with Kennedy Chandler, the – top point guard in America out of Briarcrest in Memphis coming in to play next year. I think he'll solve the point guard problems. And, um, and then I, I don't think Rick Barnes is going to budge on, on his preferred style of play, which is getting that ball at the elbow low block and operating it through there, despite having good guard play. Um, they're going to be needing, you know, Grant Williams 2.0, whether that comes through the transfer market or through the recruiting class. So, um, yeah, I, I still think all, all things considered, uh, they, they had a good year, not a great year, 
I think was frustrating for the fan bases. At times you saw the potential where you felt like, hey, this team could make a good run. And then from my standpoint, I thought they checked three key boxes entering the NCAA tournament. How was your conference tournament momentum? They won a game. They performed well against Alabama, got their confidence back. Did they get a good seed? I thought they got a very generous seed. Did they get a good matchup? thought they had a generous matchup. And so when you when you see those things line up and then come out and play the way they did, obviously it's frustrating for the fans and the coaching staff. Dana, part of the March Madness is conference comparison. And we're, we're seeing nationally the conversation about the Pac-12, and rightfully so with the great job they've done in the tournament, the Big Ten and how quickly their teams diminished. And then the SEC's right there in the middle not getting much discussion. But it wasn't that long ago that we were having a hard time finding four tournament-eligible teams in the conference, and then the mandate was laid out that this conference must improve on, on the hardwood. What have been your thoughts on the development in that area across the conference and the direction that the SEC is headed in basketball? Yeah, and I, I hate to, to draw conclusions on conferences based on the NCAA tournament. Um, you Look, they either showed up to play and they, they won or they got beat, you know, but it doesn't truly give you a grade on each conference. And I, I'm not here to say the Big Ten was a complete bust, you know, but bottom line is they just didn't perform well in the NCAA tournament. Um, does that mean the Big Ten Penn, Big Ten's not one of the top conferences in America? Absolutely not. Um, but it, it can help the narrative. And going back to what you said, that the uh, SEC really benefited from that um, several years ago, I forget the exact year, 16, 17, maybe, uh, in South Carolina's final four run. I started with the SEC Network in 2014, and man, uh, those were yeah, those were like that, that studio session was always walking on eggshells because all you wanted, all you could talk about really was Kentucky, a little bit of Florida, and then everybody else was like apologizing for their rebuild situation or wait till they get these recruits in, wait till this coach builds his brand, all that stuff, and and a lot of the even though there was improvements being made in the SEC. The facilities were getting upgraded. The scheduling was getting upgraded. Uh, starting at the top in the conference, they were giving much more attention to uh, what needed to be done. And then the budgets improved to hire some of the big-name coaches. But even with all that, you weren't going to get the immediate results, whether it was Frank Martin taking five years to get to the uh, NCAA tournament, making his run. Bruce Pearl took, I think, five years to get his. Rick Barnes took a few years. So all these things took time. Um, but I do think that South Carolina run – really got the attention of other people to say, okay, maybe it's not just about Kentucky, Florida anymore. And, and this year I would have loved to see the SEC. I thought they could get as many as four teams to the Sweet 16. Would have been a great thing to hang your hat on. But the other part of that is to say, yeah, but at least the two we got are two that you don't normally expect to see in there. That's Alabama, Arkansas, and uh, not having to just rely on Kentucky um, to carry the brand of the SEC that they had to do for so many years. Great discussion today with Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network, former Vol, of course, a White Station Spartan as well. Dane, always great to catch up with you, man. We really enjoy your work and appreciate the time here on the show. Thanks Anytime. So Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Dane. Dane Bradshaw has been our guest. Follow him on Twitter, at Dane Bradshaw, and check him out on the SEC Network. One, one point out of that I just want to pick up on, and, and I like that he said it, and I, I don't want to be an apologist. Uh, but I, I tend to agree with what he's saying about conferences. We're, it's a great storyline and narrative, right, where a conference comes in the tournament and either achieves much more than it did in the regular season 
or underachieves compared to what it did in the regular season. But I think we tend to underrate the variable of the tournament, right? If Oral Roberts, I, I'm trying to think of who, who teams lost to, right? But if Ohio State and Illinois and Purdue, you know, did they underachieve? Sure. Illinois faced Loyola, for okay, instance. Okay, so, but Illinois runs into Loyola also, which is just partly it got a bad draw. Right? Does that make Illinois terrible and underachieving story? I don't think so. Illinois is a very good basketball team. Well, they won their tournament. So if you swap out Illinois and Oregon, Oregon's gone if it runs into to, to, uh, Loyola, right? Sure. And Illinois is still playing. So it's a, a, a simple flip, right? And, and then the narratives aren't as strong. So I think we really want to rank conferences based on who's left in the Sweet 16. But if you flip two teams, two lines, and they run into the uh, 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 different conferences, run into the wrong teams in the brackets, the narratives get watered down all of a sudden, and it's pretty it's pretty easy to change. Coming up on Outkick 360, if you're new to the show, if you're a season ticket holder for <laughs> Taste the show, it again for the first time. there are stories that make up the fabric of our friendship and why we've been together for nine years and how many stories we can go back to. There are classics along the way that we'll reference, sometimes as inside jokes, that need some discussion in advance so everyone can be in on it. And the setup is simple for the next story from Paul Koharski. At 2 o'clock in the morning on a, what, two years ago, he awoke and there was a naked kid on acid in his living room. That story is next on OutKick 360. Coming to you from Studio G in Nashville, Tennessee at the glorious Blackbird Studios here in Nashville and the Blackbird Academy, online at theblackbirdacademy.com. If you are a prospective student, if you are passionate about audio, studio engineering, whatever it might be, check out theblackbirdacademy.com for more information. And check out Blackbird Studios, over 14,000 square feet of rehearsal space nine state-of-the-art studios. Uh, just talking about them doesn't do it justice uh, across the country. This is regarded as the, the level 10. This is as good as you can get. Blackbird Studio getting it done for us, and we certainly appreciate them hosting the 360 studios for OutKick. Paul, um, there have been some requests over the last eight days. This is show nine for the Naked Intruder story, which is an all-time classic for our show over the last nine years. There are tentpole stories that we are going to reference over the next decade. And <laughs> this is, this this is, is the going tentpole. To be, this, this is, is the tentpole to start. This is one of them. And my sign-off uh, has been incomplete. We got to the don't block the box. There is a second piece of the sign-off, which I'll begin today after I share this story. I know Jakob and Lance are, are very anxious to hear the story, which has some humor to it now in hindsight, but was not at all funny on the night that it occur, occurred at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning in my Brentwood residence. Um, I was asleep in, uh, in front of the TV in our bonus room. Uh, my son had a habit at the time, I think he was nine, of falling asleep or spending too much time in his parents' bed, which was a fortunate thing on this night when his mother scooped him up upon hearing someone enter our home downstairs. 
and took him into the master bathroom and screamed, Paul, there is someone in our house. I did not have my glasses on or my contact lenses in. And I raced as a dutiful father and husband downstairs where I heard a commotion, got to the bottom of the stairs. I'm in a daze, right? I've been asleep. And there's a woman who looks a lot like my wife at the bottom of the stairs addressing a naked guy who's standing, you know, at the far, if you're at the bottom of my stairs, the front door is to the right, uh, you know, a window near the back door to the left. This guy's up against the window. Um, and this woman is screaming at him, do you live here, sir? I'm screaming, this man doesn't live here. What the bleep are you doing in my house? Get out of my house. You know, going crazy. But I'm completely confused as to what's going on. This guy's acting crazy, crazy. She's got a taser pointed at him. I'm still thinking it's Teresa. I don't know what's going on. Um, it seems like forever that this standoff is going on. And ultimately, uh, I'm standing with this policewoman, and there's this showdown happening. Something bad is about to happen. And he ultimately charges us. I, for some reason, my obsession is with getting this man out of the house. The front door remains open. And the solution to me seems not to uh, capture him or for her to get handcuffs on him, which I don't realize she has, or anything like that. I gotta get this guy out of my house. I gotta get him out of my house. I gotta get that door closed. So she's kind of wrestling him up top. I am trying to pin his kicking legs. He knocks me into the wall, he knocks me in the face. She tases him, which as a result of me having hold of his legs, tases me. <laughs> so I'm already dazed. Now I'm dazed and tased. I forgot it's, about the mutual tasing. It's a wild thing. My wife is on the phone with the police upstairs, knowing that this is a police officer. I don't know that. Everything. And the police know that, that that's going on at the time. Well, right? she's a policewoman. You still so, think it's your wife. Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing much thinking about who it is or what's going on at this time, but only after we finally collectively subdue him and you know, I've got his legs wrapped, which are kicking ferociously, and she's, we've got him on his stomach and she's finally got his arms and I've kind of got his legs and she's uh, got his arms done and she reaches to her shoulder to talk into her shoulder thing and that's when her head turns and I'm like where Hutton is, and I see her face and realize she's talking into her shoulder, and I'm like, this is a bleeping cop. <laughs> this is no dream. <laughs> so this whole thing is like a wild flurry. You know, we checked, like, what time Teresa made the call to the police when she went into the bathroom and what time she hung up only when I came upstairs, and it was like three and a half minutes. This whole thing happened in three and a half minutes. You know, police show up. They give this guy a shot of whatever the huge sedative is to calm him down because he's so crazy. He's still flailing like a What's fish he saying? In is he saying boat. anything? Nonsense. You know, it's just crazy nonsense. But in the meantime, police cars show up and a fire truck shows up. And the fire truck is effectively blocking my house from the two neighbors across the street that we're friends with who are left to 
stare through the fire truck contemplating what happened. One thought I had had a heart attack. Another, I can't remember what their prediction was, but they're waiting a long time until they can hear what happens. <clears throat> it turns out this kid was on an acid trip from the neighborhood over where there was a party. If you take a lot of acid, apparently, it makes you really hot. And so it's not uncommon for guys, people on a big acid trip to release themselves of their clothes because they're so damn hot. So he parked his car. Of their he parked his car somewhere in our neighborhood and released himself of his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> somebody who was house sitting for somebody in our neighborhood called the police. This policewoman came and was tracking him. She got out of the car to chase him. And we think he was merely uh, running from her and maybe trying doors. Now, my door is not, there's not like a particularly big entryway to my door. Some have, you know, a couple steps you would have to take to get to the door. I've got a little bit of a porch, but the door is pretty accessible. And somehow while I set the alarm, I forgot to mention the alarm is going oh. off during all of this. But the door wasn't locked. Those alarms are not quiet. They're okay, so I've loud. beaten myself up for two years over not having locked this lock. All right, so it's a funny story in hindsight, but I'm tormented over <laughs> how I didn't handle this. Uh, and you came in the next morning. Uh, or well, the uh, next morning was a Sunday. Uh, so the Titans the, game. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it was a regular season game or preseason. It might have been like a hot preseason afternoon game, a 3 o'clock game right. in the sun. I think, we didn't you, know what to do. You Simon came in ended with a up black eye. going to a soccer game. Vrabel made fun of my black eye, and I said, "Actually, it's not that funny." <laughs> um, uh, we still may have a photo of the black eye. Yeah, and my kid wound up obviously traumatized in a longer thing. One of the things he associated very much with this, we tried. You know, we didn't know what to do the next day. We tried to behave normally. We said, "Hey, right. do you want to go to your soccer game?" He said, "Yeah." Then he up quitting soccer. He just restarted after two years. And the person that he talked to a little bit who helped him through this, she told us at one point the things that he connected with the break-in, soccer was number two on the list mm. from having played that day in that game. So, long story long. Um, who my was sign the off, My sign-off is don't block the box, but do lock the locks so that you don't forget to lock the locks. Every night we go through a ritual. Are the doors locked? Is the alarm on? Yes, it is. This kid was a student at Ravenwood High School. I did not go to his court hearing. I didn't feel a reason to open this up for myself. He got some very strict probation. He wrote a letter. I made it clear I did not want to know his name. He signed it with his initials. He said he wanted to meet us in person or meet me in person to apologize. I had no interest in anything that would open it up further for me in seeing him. I would like still, if I saw him, to say, you know, I got a kid that I fear as a 23-year-old is going to wake up in the middle of the night and think about the break-in at our house, and I'd like to still punch him in the head, and I'm not a man for violence. Did you get a good shot in on him while, while he was scrambling on the ground? Do you remember any well, of that? Well, I wasn't up where I, you know, I, another thing I think of in hindsight is I should have squeezed him in the sack as hard as I could. <laughs> right? or you got to fight him. dirty. Yeah. Kicked in that him moment, there. That would have sure. subdued him. But I was really concentrated on the lower legs. I was yeah. like at the knees. Um, and he needs you at one point, right? Or kicked you? 
Yeah, there was so much flailing. Yeah, I don't know what hit leg. me. Just something was there a, hit me. And I've never thought to ask. Was there like a trail of clothes <laughs> where you could see? No, where I mean been? those clothes were in the neighborhood, the car somewhere. or in the neighborhood, strewn about the neighborhoods. Uh, <laughs> That's what I mean. Like down the down the street. Uh, was there I a cop no going idea. by and picking up? Oh, here's a pair of pants, and then a hundred <laughs> yards later, here's the underwear. But then I did and have a, a shirt. I, I had periodic episodes, like on the next door app. You guys on the next door app in your neighborhood? No. You know, and somebody was bitching about uh, kids stealing, you know, political advertising signs, and I'm like, boy, we sure are willing to call out the kids for these little mischievous behaviors. But when there's an acid party going on in the adjacent neighborhood, nobody's saying a word. You know. So let's let's have Junior burst into my house naked and scare the shit out of my family. He would have gotten shot in seven out of ten houses in Brentwood. Yeah, but nobody say a word about that. But if somebody moves your sign, let's have a 25-post conversation about that. <laughs> That's getting to the bottom of what's going on in our neighborhoods. We, we have long said, you bring up a good point, Paul, in Williamson County, that kid is dead if he goes into the wrong house. Especially that time. And yes, during that time, that, that would have been a moment that... We're on 2 a.m., um, right? Yes. He's very lucky that he rolled into to to your a, house. Yeah. My wife has long said that. Because someone that's packing at that point, that kid's dead. My, my wife has long said that. He chose the right house. It turned out fine. Everybody was all right outside of a black eye. The police handled it terrifically. Brentwood police were amazing. And, uh, you know, kid made a huge error. I don't know what the status of his life is, but I know he's not dead. And there's not blood splattered on the back window of our house forcing us to have to relocate. <laughs> well, he's... But, you know, <laughs> Hopefully here, he's, here's, he's the thing with, here's the thing with your kid, though. You know, he comes to you with, with nightmare scenarios like any kid does, and you say, that will never happen. Yeah, right. And then this happens, That's and tough. you can never again say, that will never happen, because he says... Well, what about, you know, that, that break-in happened? The naked intruder, the one time. Yeah, what about the, that, Dad? The naked intruder. Now, I have, I have to, one final touch. I have another story that we'll tell someday that involves Key West and naked gay guys. <laughs> and so... That is a hell of a tease. I've, I've co-mingled... A hell of a tease. I've co-mingled the stories a few times. That'll be on the iKick360 OnlyFans page. Right. Yeah, that that's story right. We'll be told there. I don't know if you were around for this chat or not. I think you were, but Hutton, I, I'm sure, oh. remembers this. I've co-mingled the stories a few times, and when we referred back to the naked Intruders. acid guy, yeah. I've said the naked gay guy because I have the other story <laughs> in my head. This guy, I have no idea what his sexuality was. <laughs> no acid involved care. in this story, the, but, the second one. But uh, to be clear, I don't know that he was gay or not gay and if I ever slip and call him the naked gay guy it's only because I'm slipping into the other Key West story that we'll tell another time. We will need Matt Mayoko on yeah. Outkick 360 for the retelling of that story. So I hope a story lived up to the promise. It's a sad tale that winds up being humorously told and uh, don't block the box, do lock the locks. You'll hear that at the end of the show. That's what it means. Lance and, and Jakob, what do you think of the payoff of the naked intruder on acid? My favorite part was that uh, Paul was most worried about having to shoot somebody and then yeah. because he'd have to move. <laughs> that seemed to be <laughs> the first thought was, oh, we found the perfect neighborhood and now no. I'm going to have to splatter someone's brain on the wall and we're going to have to change neighborhoods again. I don't want to shoot anybody. John Rich moved me out of my last house. That's another story that'll oh. come at some point. I'm not a gun guy. And then, Maybe John Rich will be on this show. Lance? <laughs> 
I like how you confuse the policewoman for your wife and then she tased you. <laughs> yeah. So many great the nuggets. The thing is, also, story. there's a crowbar under my side of the bed, but I wasn't in my bed. <laughs> so it was. I need to put it under my Barca lounger in the uh, in in the bonus room. Also, unbelievable so, story. Great, great job, Paul. Now the I've naked intruder. I might not be in tomorrow. I've read Hashtag dazed and tased is uh, <laughs> going to be trending on Twitter. Coming up, <laughs> the Tennessee Power Hour on Outkick 360. Check us out, uh, YouTube, podcast, uh, of course, after the show on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you download your podcast. We hope that you'll share the post on Facebook if you're watching there. Uh, give us a subscription on YouTube. If you like what you see, give us a thumbs up. And on Twitter, hit the retweet button. We're back with more Outkick 360 on the Outkick Network.